chapter 9 today. Uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 10, and um, we are going to start off with a couple uh, proverbial buckets for you. Um, when you die, people say that you are kicking the bucket, right? So uh, then when you think about accomplishing all the things that, that you really hope to before you die, um, you have what kind of a list? A bucket list, right? Now, uh, Solomon, like, again, an, an old grandpa at the end of his life, is, is giving us wisdom, and he's telling us the things that he's learned, and he had all the power, all the riches, all the authority, all the wives, all the everything, and he's uh, looking back over his life, and he's contemplating things. And so if you like to contemplate, really, in some ways, somber and dark, uh, life, death, and everything in between, and be pointed to Jesus, this is going to be a good night for you, because we uh, pick up where we left off. Um, Solomon's talking about death. He's talking about kicking the bucket. Um, and then he's talking about uh, what do we do with our time on earth? So the first six verses are going to be a little bit somber. And by a little bit somber, I mean a lot somber. And, and then after that, it's going to get a little more encouraging. Um, so let me ask you, when are you going to kick the bucket? It's a funny question, but you're going to think about it a little bit tonight. Um, Solomon talks, again, for the first six verses about death. We're all headed to death. Uh, nobody knows uh, when, but if you know the why, that we're all sinners, and the consequence of sin is death. Um, death entered the world because we chose something other than God, and we're all headed to that, regardless of whether it's heaven or hell after. Um, we're still going to die on earth. Uh, but when you know the why, it helps you to find out the what. Uh, so the question then becomes, number two, what's on your bucket list? Any, anybody got a bucket list in here? A couple of you? Throw out a few things. What do you got on your bucket list? Skydiving. Sky nice. Get you in contact with Cheryl Cook. She <laughs> loves, she's a skydiving gal. Anyone else? What do you got on your bucket list? Travel the world. Travel the world. You better get started, young man. That's a long journey. That's a good one. Traveling the world. Anyone else? Devin, you win. Gold star. <laughs> Devin wins. The, he wins at life tonight. Um, yeah, those are good. It's, it's interesting to, to find out when you think about your own bucket list, uh, if you have one, um, or even what your friends or your family deem is important, right? Because for everyone, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. But the big idea is there's a lot of things in life uh, that we could be doing, but what should we be doing? And what if the Bible had a bucket list? What if, um, what if the Bible told us, here's what you should prioritize. Now, tonight's not an exhaustive list. It never is. But Solomon's going to give us six things. And so as we walk through this, let's park every so often. And let's talk about what God says through Solomon uh, should be our priorities. What should be on our bucket list tonight? All right, if you've got a Bible, jump in. Uh, remember, we are in the New Living Translation, NLT. We usually are in ESV, but not for this series because we don't uh, have time to translate a translation. All right, so verse 1, jumping in, it says, This too, so remember, everything we've gone over for all these chapters, he's saying, I've looked everywhere, near and far, everything under the sun. So he's not talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about this earthly kingdom. And he doesn't mention the name of Jesus, but um, instead of a portrait being painted of Jesus, he, he's showing a silhouette. He's showing what life in darkness in the world with no hope from God is like. And that's why this is such a somber book. But we know because we read every book of the Bible in light um, of every other book of the Bible, we know that there's hope in Jesus. But he's searching and he says, this too I carefully explored. That even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. And the same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean. So that would be the sacrificial system and what you can touch, what you can be around in the Old Testament. Religious or irreligious, good people receive the same treatment as sinners. And people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. First thing on a biblical bucket list, Solomon's teaching us, live every day in light of the last day. Live every day in light of the last day. We've talked about this several times, but he brings it up 
again. What's the thing in verse 2 that ultimately we're all headed towards? What's our destiny? He's talking about death. He's talking about death. Now, there's good news. Well, maybe not so much if you're a control freak. But verse 1, it shows us the sovereignty of God. So it says that everybody doing good deeds, bad deeds, everything in between, they're all in God's hand, meaning nothing escapes God's knowledge. All the injustices in the world, we know that God knows about this stuff, and he's ultimately going to judge us. Now, here's the real kicker, and this is either going to make you really excited or really sad, depending on how you view God. As it says, no one knows whether God will show them favor. No one knows. Now, some of us, we, we believe in God, but because of maybe our earthly experience with a father or mother or authority figure or um, just, our, um, just our life experience, we see God as sovereign and we know he's in control and we know he's out there, but he doesn't necessarily care about us or our personal uh, daily walk in life and actions and behavior, but we know he's going to judge us. And so we know that he's absolute, but more like absolute, like a math equation, not necessarily um, the heart of a father. And so if you view God like he's absolute and sovereign, like a math equation, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that's not going to change, it just is what it is, then you read verse 1 and you say, this is going to be sad. No one knows what God's going to do. But if you recognize that God is a father and he is sovereign and you can trust his heart, especially because he sent his son Jesus to die for us, then you can have security knowing, yeah, I have favor if my faith is in Christ. I know what he's going to respond to me with. So that's good news. In verse 2, he's saying, hey, everybody is headed to the same destiny. So death awaits us all. Death awaits us all. Death is the great equalizer. He's saying the good spouse, the one who does everything they can to make the marriage work, they love, they, they serve, they work hard, um, and the bad spouse, the one who is uh, faithless and who um, doesn't try very hard and is lazy and who have made more mistakes than they can count, both of them are going to die. And, and the student who stays up till midnight trying to be a perfectionist and get an A on everything and does all their work and plays by the rules, and then the student who cheats off of the person who stays up till midnight and does all their work and plays by the rules, both of them are going to die. And, and the coworker who goes to work and does all their work diligently, and the coworker who doesn't show up to work routinely, they're both headed to the same place. Not heaven or hell, but death. They all got the last day, regardless of how they get there, they got it in common. They got it in common. And the world will tell you, you got to seize the day, because what you choose to do today will dictate what's going to happen for you in the future. But Solomon's saying, you need to step back and you need to ponder the future so it dictates how you choose to live today. You need to think about the last day and let it dictate what you're going to do today. You see, the question isn't if, but when, and it's where are you going? And if you know that I'm going to heaven because your faith is in Christ, then it changes what you're going to do today. You see, if you talk to any financial planner, um, the first conversation you're going to have is going to be, where do you want to end up? You can't invest in retirement or or really anything financially with a financial advisor without having that conversation first. Because if you don't know where you're going, you don't know what steps to take today. And Solomon's saying in the same way, if you think that your destination is heaven, then what you do today should reflect your destination. It's hard, though, to think of the last day. Some of us, we fear death, even as Christians. We know we shouldn't because we know heaven should be a good thing. But sometimes, if we're honest, we struggle with it. Now I've got a three-year-old, so I don't have to worry about him um, hiding too much from me when it comes to these kinds of questions because he, he'll say whatever's on his mind. And you know he loves messing with me right before bed because, um, as we've said in the past, he, if you ask a preacher theology questions as he's turning off the light, you're going to get a little bit more time awake uh, because I just can't let that go. And he told me the other night, just a couple nights ago, I, I kissed him, sang him his song, read him his book, prayed with him, did the whole routine. And as he's laying in bed, um, I was in the middle of actually of the prayer and, and I said something about heaven and he stopped me and he said, uh, Daddy, I don't want to go to heaven. And I said, well, why? 
He said, because there's nothing good in heaven. And I said, no, actually, it's going to be nothing but good. It's going to be good. He said, no, but it's not. And if you've been around Silas, like he's very emphatic and it's very clear cut in his mind. So it's not like, oh, I'm kind of struggling with this. No, he just very somberly, no, there's nothing. There's nothing good in heaven. And he says, I just want to stay on earth. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you? He's always saying these things. He just wants to stay on earth. We had a conversation for a couple minutes um, before I shut it down. And his struggle was all he knows on earth, both the good and the bad, seems to be better than what he views heaven. And that's sad. But some of us, we do struggle with that. And, and the truth is, if you're found in Christ, then ultimately your last day on earth will be your best day. Your last day will be your best day. And so we don't live life in fear of that day. We live life in preparation for that day. And as believers, we get to choose to make our goals, to make our plans, to make our activities, not in running from that day, but recognizing it's coming and I get to choose because I'm going to be in eternity in heaven with God forever. I get to choose to bring heaven to earth. I get to choose to expand God's kingdom here on earth. I get to choose to do things that make an eternal impact. Let me ask you, what goals do you have in life? What are you doing? We all got to work jobs, right? We got to pay bills. We got to do stuff. But if you took out all of the goals that you have in life that didn't have an eternal impact for you and people around you, would you have any goals left? I think so many of our goals don't have anything to do with our last day, but just trying to prolong this day. Say, well, I want... I, I got some fitness goals and some health goals. Why? So you can live longer? I mean, I hope you live long. Most of us, like, we just, we just want to have money to last us to the end and, and our health to last us for the end. We want to push back the day of death. And God's saying, if you just think about the day of death and find security in Christ, then you can make the most of every day here so that more people can go with you into heaven if you're caring about his kingdom. What's your goals? I think um, if you looked at your goals from an eternal standpoint, it would change the way you live every day like work. Let's be honest. Um, if you're thinking, well, I'm here to expand God's kingdom with my employees and to love them and to serve them, uh, then you probably wouldn't sweat some of the small stuff and get caught up in the details of the drama as much, would you? And your relationships, if you were, had goals in your relationships that reflect eternity, you'd probably forgive a lot more often because you'd realize there's a much bigger picture than my happiness and their happiness and just trying to work things out and the latest and greatest fight and just getting through it, but making them pay for it a little bit. No, you'd say, I got to forgive. There's a bigger picture. And your overall plan in life, wouldn't it change, right? Because you would realize I'm not here to build my kingdom. My kingdom is a sandcastle and it's going to wash away. And that's what Solomon's saying. I'm here to build his kingdom. Again, we talk about this on a regular basis. Your legacy isn't what you leave behind. It's who you bring with you. And through the gospel, you get a chance to expand that kingdom. So live in light of every day. Live every day in light of the last day. And verse 3 says, It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. You ever just have one of those moments where you're just watching the news and you're just like, this is so broken. It's so broken. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course. Oh man, we could talk about that verse <laughs> all day. For they have no hope. That's key. Hope. And there's nothing ahead but death anyway. There's only, excuse me, there is hope only for the living. As they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Now keep in mind, if you go to a third world country today, and certainly 2,000, well, 3,000 years ago for Solomon, dogs roamed, and they were not looked at as good things. Like people nowadays, we walk uh, around with our dogs, and we're the ones walking, and they're in a baby cart, or we put them in a little container, and we do their hair and put clothes on them and stuff because we exalt our puppies, right? But back, they're not talking about dogs that are, well being a dog and a good thing. And being a lion is obviously a good thing. And he's saying, though it'd be better to be a live dog, a lowly old dog, than a majestic lion if that lion is dead. The second thing on a biblical bucket list is you've got to find hope in Jesus. 
got to find hope. Solomon mentions there's only hope for the living. Unless your hope is in something dead. Atheism, I, I don't understand for several reasons, but one reason I don't understand is um, if you look at uh, the basic human need for hope, no matter what the circumstance in your life, in a third world country, in America, wherever you are and whatever you're going through, humanity needs hope. Sometimes we'll just make our own hope. We'll just come up with weird things that we can place our hope in. And atheism, I, I always wonder, where, where's the hope? Like, even if you don't really believe in any of this God stuff, wouldn't you just fake it for the sake of <laughs> fulfilling your instinct for hope? Like, just be like, well, at least there's some hope. But your hope is that you're right, so then you die, and then we all just go back to dust, and nothing happens. Like, that's it? So hope in it. I think, uh, I think everybody, Christians, and non-Christians have hope in the things unseen. Of course, if you look in Hebrews, faith is hope in the things unseen, right? Um, But the question is, is your hope in uh, a living God that's unseen or unreached goals? Because there's, there's I think, an idolatry specifically within the church to where we say, my hope is in Jesus, but most of our daily hope is not in the gospel. Our daily hope is in the next stage in life. It's in the next goal. It's in fulfilling unreached things. And it's good to talk about that because for some of us, um, that's why we we're so disappointed all the time and we don't experience um, a consistent joy in Christ. Is your hope in a living God or a dead end? Let me give you an example. If you guys check out ESPN every once in a while, uh, you'll see stories like this. I saw today Aaron Rodgers. He's a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, and they were doing a story on him. Um, He's a pretty private fellow, but they were doing a story about the last six years of his life and all the changes that have happened. And in 2011, he... um, he led the Packers to win the Super Bowl. And in this article, it was saying that he was on the bus after the Super Bowl. And you know, you know the whole Super Bowl stuff. You win it, and then you're supposed to say, like, oh, what are you going to do? And, they, and you say, I'm going to Disneyland. And then you do your silly thing, get your picture taken. right? And it's supposed to be, like, the greatest moment of your life. It's what all these football players live for. Like, that's their hope. There's no other legitimate hope. And if you even in the football world say, well, it's just about the money, then no one wants you on their team, Right? Because it's about the Super Bowl. And he said he was sitting on the bus after winning the Super Bowl, and he said to himself, I hope this isn't all I do in life. Like, see, that's what I think about. I think about what happens when you fulfill your hope in things that were unseen, unreached goals, and you actually reach that goal. You got that house. You got that spouse. You got this. You got that. You fill in the blank, and then you're like, but it's not Jesus. And so, therefore, it can't give me what only he can. Not to mention, the very nature of things spiritually is not being filled up by stuff, but giving our lives to God. And so, whatever you accomplish, it just doesn't do anything as much as giving it all away, giving it up, and placing your faith in Christ. What's your hope in? Do you think daily, do you think about the, the, the life, the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial death um, that he died in your place, the, the life-giving resurrection, the imminent return? We don't know when he's coming back, but he said he's coming back, and, and we're going to be with him one day. And this is all just a hotel room, and we're all just building sandcastles, and it's all going to be wiped away. It's all temporary, and we're going to be with him. And it's going to be amazing, and I don't know every detail, but the Bible describes some pretty awesome stuff about heaven. And... and do you think about that? Or, or if you were honest with yourself, would you find that your bucket list doesn't have much to do with hope in Jesus, but more about your hope in the unreached things here on earth that you're going after? Well, things are going to change if I just get my life together a little bit, settle down, find that person I can marry. This is going to be depressing to you. I'm not trying to depress you. 
Last night, Tara and I, we were eating supper. Silas is sitting there, and he's just throwing a fit, man. He'd peed his pants a couple times, and he's just eating, and he's crying. He's eating, he's crying, and he's just going back and forth. Tara and I are eating. We're looking at each other, partially looking at each other, mostly just kind of looking off into the distance, and we're eating, and he's just crying. He's just right there. And Tara and I didn't even say a word to each other. We just turned up the music and just endured. And later on in the night, we were laying in bed about to go to sleep, and I looked at her, and I said, listen, Here's what I've come to realize. This is going to be depressing. Please don't tweet this. I, I said, when you get married and have children, you give up your right for all happiness. <laughs> like, it just is the way it is. Like, there is a new joy, a new happiness that comes with marriage and children. Don't get me wrong. It's a different kind. But there are times, like, because the answer is not that Silas is going to change overnight. No, like, we're just going to sit, and our, 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 our worldly thought is, we can, can't we eat in peace? And, and the answer is no. No, you can't eat in peace. Maybe ever again. Like, it, you gave that up. You can't enjoy it. You just listen to him cry. It is. So if, if your hope is in spouse and children, newsflash. That's what you get. If I just get my finances together, I want to move to Minneapolis or Lindsburg, get in one of those quaint little cool houses and find a community that's going to be beautiful and perfect. Uh, And then you find out you get there and you're the outsider and the house is expensive. And you want to know why it's so quaint and cool? Because it's 200 years old and it costs a lot of money to keep up. And you're going to find that it's just not perfect. It might be wonderful, but it's not Jesus. Well, my hope is that when I, when I get out of the hospital and things start to change physically, my health gets back. You ever hear anyone say that? Well, just when I can get my health back under me and everything's going to be fine, then, then what? You last a few more years and die in your sleep? I told you, this is going to be depressing for a little bit. I mean, think about it. If I could just get to the gym and get healthy, why? Prolong What? I call me crazy, but this is the stuff that I think Solomon's thinking about, and it's the weird stuff that sometimes I think about. For some of us, it'd be prolonging misery. You see, there's um, there's a huge difference between uh, living for hope and living with hope, and, and um. One sulks as it searches and the other one smiles as it stands. Those who live for hope will sulk as they search. He says that twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course for they have no hope. If you are in that boat, then you are sulking as you're constantly searching, just trying to find hope. You're living for hope, but you don't have hope compared to in Christ. If you think about what we have in Jesus and that this is all temporary and that all the ailments, all the sickness, all the brokenness, it'll go away one day and we'll be with him. And I know it's going to be so much more than any preacher can describe. Then you stand and you smile in confidence knowing, I know that things are broken. I know that I'm broken, but Jesus isn't broken. That's hope. That's real hope. Anything less is that. Verse 5 and 6, he says, The living at least know they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. So I'm trying to make this positive, but like if you just, it just you just read the words and it it's just rough. Verse six: Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, he could go on and on, is all long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. All right. Number three: Your biblical bucket list. You've got to live every day in light of the last day. You've got to find hope in Jesus. And the Bible says, number three, Solomon's telling us, reprioritize the urgent. Reprioritize the urgent. Let me ask you, are you super busy right now? Like Not like now, 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 but like today, this week. Is it a little bit chaotic for anyone? How many of you have to-do lists that are perpetually, they're just ongoing, and you knock a few things off, but like, you add three for every two that you knock off. It's a little bit kind of depressing, isn't it? I, a lot of us are, are crazy busy. I, um, I feel that. 
a lot. Solomon's saying it doesn't matter. None of it matters. It doesn't matter. Let me ask you, if you had just a couple hours to live um, and you thought about all the activities uh, that you've done this week or, or this month, the, the worrying that you've done, the complaining that you've done, what would you regret? What would you regret? He says in verse 6, that whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it's, it's all long gone. They no longer play. He's just saying in these verses like, what you're doing on earth. Again, this is under the sun. So this isn't the kingdom of God. But it, you might be doing a lot of things, but are you doing the right things? Now, here's the thing. And this hopefully is where it starts to turn just a little bit um, into some, some good stuff. You can read this and you can go one of two paths. You can, number one, just sit in despair and say, this is depressing. Why even try? Or you can embrace the, the reality that, again, he's talking about everything under the sun. And sometimes we've got to look above the sun. We're not thinking about this kingdom, but his kingdom here. And number two, you can say, there's just a greater urgency to do what matters because I don't want myself to live for Jesus and look back and say, I did a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't actually matter. I want my life to count. God wants it to count. Like that's a decision each one of us get every single day. I mean, if you just stop and think about that, like I get to choose to make an eternal impact in people's lives. And when you hear these verses, all of a sudden you're like, why wouldn't I be doing things? Why wouldn't I make disciples? Why wouldn't I tell someone about Jesus? Why wouldn't I sit down and help them to follow Jesus? Uh, think about, think about your, your weekly activities, your daily activities like, like a garden. When you think about what is filling your schedule, I mean, if you just cleared your schedule right now um, and you got to choose whatever you filled it with, but you got to start from scratch, like what kinds of stuff would you want to fill it with? You would dream a little bit and you would think about some, some cool things. You think, oh man, I, I just wish, wish I could share my faith. I wish I could make an impact in this way and that way. And it's just like when you start a garden, no one starts a garden thinking, I'm going to grow some amazing weeds right? It's just going to be a bounty of beautiful weeds. No one does that, right? But when people start a garden, they say, hey, guess what? I'm going to plant this and that. And ooh, I want to plant this. And do I plant it in April? No, it'll freeze. Go tell me. And then you like, you got game plan and all you're thinking about are the cool things that can grow. But then what's the reality of the garden? The reality is you start trying to grow the good stuff and you're going to have nonstop maintenance of weeds, and you're going to have to spray a little bit, and if you've got bugs, and if you've got disease, and you've got to do all these things. And some of us, even a month or two in, we get so bombarded by the weeds, we forgot that we started the, grow, the garden in the first place to grow some good stuff. And we get so beaten down by the maintenance of life and the status quo and the, we're just maintaining things, right? Are you, are you seeing the spiritual connection here? And so some of us, we know all about this hope in Jesus and we really do have it, but we're warned because we got to go to Dylan's and we got to get groceries and we got to drop the kids off and we got to go to work and I got to get my hair done and I got to do this and I got this. And we just have errand after errand after errand. We have maintenance keeping up and just filling our schedules. And let me ask you, if you popped your head up from the weeds to look at what the garden was growing and you saw that all the plants were dying, would it feel like it was worth pulling weeds? No. You see, I didn't start this thing to grow something that's dying. And yet, if you look at the activities in our week and you say, what are the big pillars of my, what are the things that I'm investing the most time in, the most energy, or am I making an impact for Christ? You say, you know what? I don't know that it's worth maintaining that schedule because the impact isn't that great. It's not what I set out to do. It's not what God wants. And some of us, we, we need to pop our heads up out of the weeds for a second and say, maybe we need to just replant this garden. 
And, and here's, here's the thing. Some of you are thinking in your mind, you're thinking, well, Ryan, that sounds great, but how are you actually, when you only got so many hours in a day, and again, you got to go get groceries or you starve, you got to go do these things, you got to do these maintenance things, then what do we do? And here, in the business world, they'll say this, but even in ministry, we say it all the time, the, ty- the tyranny of the urgency. You ever hear that? The tyranny of the urgency. It, it, there will always be urgent things. There'll always be things that you've got to do. And if you want to replant the garden in the middle of the season, what you've got to do is reprioritize the urgent. You've got to reprioritize. You look at these verses and you say, there's, there, there's no hope unless you reprioritize what is the most important for you to be doing. And you say, okay, you know what? I can't quit my job. I shouldn't quit my job. But right now, my job isn't doing anything for the kingdom of God. I've got to come back to my job and say, we're going to grow something better here. And I'm going to think about how I can reach out to my coworkers. I'm going to love them. I'm going to think about, I'm going to think about ways I can serve them. I'm going to have a different mindset and intentionality with maybe even the same stuff I already got going on. Other things just need to get cut out. And that was growing, and it shouldn't have been growing. It was bad. Maybe it was sinful. Maybe it was junk. It's just going over here. And you're going to plant some new stuff and say, I'm going to spend my time volunteering instead of an hour of Netflix. I'm going to spend my time in the Word of God instead of two hours doing something random that isn't benefiting anyone. Are you, are you seeing the spiritual connection? I feel like this is a gardening show gone wrong right now. Verse 7. We're going to have to move a little bit quicker through these last two or three. In verse 7, now this is where it gets better. This is where it gets good. He says, So go ahead. So verses 1 through 6, pretty depressing. We're all going to die. Here's where it gets better. So go ahead. Eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Hmm. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Is this the Bible? (laughs) Does that sound like the Bible? Some of us, we just feel like kind of awkward reading that, don't we? We feel kind of guilty, like, yeah, I don't think I should do that. I don't think I should do that. That sounds like it's not good. Number four, fourth thing we see, enjoy life with Jesus. Enjoy life with Jesus. Some of us, we grow up in church, we hear preachers talk all the time, and we know life in Jesus is amazing. Not just life in heaven, but eternal life, which starts the moment you place your faith in Jesus. And, and you get to walk with him, and you get to talk with him, and you get to eat with him, and you get to have coffee with him, and you get to talk to the living God, and this is going to be good, and it's awesome. And yet, some of us just don't experience it much. And when we hit these verses, it's like, it's like Silas, he... Um, we talked about going to the beach for months, literally months prior to him going. And then we drove down there. It took three days to get down there when we went uh, a month or two ago. Three days. We talked about the beach all the time. But he'd never been to the beach. And here was the moment when he saw the beach for the first time. I wanted to catch him as he walked over that boardwalk and he saw the ocean. He learned all the sea creatures. He knew all about the ocean, but he'd never been to the ocean. It didn't take long for him to get here. <laughs> he just, he enjoyed it. And he relaxed. And you didn't have to tell him how to do it. He just did it. And, and I think for some of us, that, that's what needs to happen when we see these verses. Because we read them and we have like guilt inside because we're like, I don't think I should enjoy. Like, I shouldn't have cologne. I shouldn't eat. And I like, this sounds extravagant. This doesn't sound like stuff I learned in church growing up. And surely God would want me to sell all my stuff and give it to the orphans and not go out to have fun. Listen, you want to know why you and I feel guilty inside when we see these? is because it comes to the issue of righteousness and holiness and attaining it. And something about us says, this doesn't feel very righteous when it comes to living. You see, there's three ways that most humans uh, try to attain righteousness by subtraction, addition, and redemption. By subtraction, 
some of us say, well, if I just withhold some things that the world partakes in, if I just withhold them from me and say, you know what, God, I'm not going to have a decent car because I could spend that money on, on all the, the people who need food. And I'm not going to, um, I can't even eat this food here in front of me because there's people who don't have food. And so I'm just not going to eat anything tonight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to starve and I'm not going to. And then we find ourselves saying, I'm just going to subtract some things. I shouldn't partake in anything good. Um, and maybe God will see me as holy in that. And God's standing with you like a father at Christmas looking down as he's given you presents and you say, nope, I'm not going to open it because there's other kids who don't have presents. And your dad is saying in heaven, I gave you a gift. And to not open it isn't holy, it's a slap in the face. And it's true, there's kids without other gifts. But it's also true, there's a good father who gives gifts. And so by you withholding from something doesn't mean that someone else gets it. The restaurants in town are still going to throw all their food in the trash at the end of tonight when all that could be going to a third world country. And I wish it worked differently, but your subtraction from certain things doesn't equal holiness. And then number two, some people say, well, maybe by addition, if I just do some stuff. You know, if you grew up in a super religious household that said, you got to be in church every time the doors are open and you got to do X, Y, and Z. Not just the Christian life that's described in scripture, but above and beyond that Pharisee kind of stuff. And you better do exactly what the Christian culture tells you to do and listen to the right music and do everything that we tell you to do. And then God will deem you lovable and worthy and valuable. You know what kids do when they grow up in that? They see that their parents teach them that sin and fun are synonymous. And so the first chance they have to rebel and get away from their parents, they say, let's just go have fun. Because this old Jesus thing does not scream life to me. It screams prison and horribleness. And the cross is nullified because if we're saying, hey, Jesus took a beating on the cross, but I want you to take a beating by serving your little heart out until you prove that you're good enough, then what does the cross do for you? It's no better than any kind of works-based religion that this world has to offer. The good news is that it's good news. Jesus died. He died. He's the Savior, so you don't have to be. And then number three, and this is the healthy one, There's holiness by redemption, recognizing that you are a sinner, that God is perfect, and that he has a plan even when you messed things up, and that he, by the blood of Jesus, wants to save your soul and make you holy and exchange your sinfulness for his righteousness. And on the cross, you make that exchange, and he did everything it takes to make you holy. And your behavior, I hope, reflects it a good chunk of the time, but it won't reflect it all the time, and grace covers you. And you've got to just be able to rest with the knowledge that you're still flawed and you're still a work in progress, but God's not flawed, and he finished the job on the cross. If you can't rest in that, it's going to make you miserable. But these are the reasons why this, this makes us either feel really good or really awkward when we read these verses. And the big idea is Solomon's not saying, hey, just forget about the gospel, forget about God, just go enjoy these things. Yeah, you could just drink your wine and eat your food with joy, go ahead. God gives you a green light, and so he's not a red light God anymore that says you can't do this, you can't do that. No, this is a new God and he's awesome. No, the big idea is you do these things with God. Nothing apart from God is good. Nothing apart from God is good. So one day in heaven, we're going to be eating with Jesus. He's preparing a supper for us right now. And we're his bride, and we're going to show up, and it's going to be beautiful. And so you get to eat with him on earth, too. And you get to invite him in to your, your, your life and your family and your enjoyment and, and, and these things. And you don't need to feel guilty all the time. Now, you know your own heart. You know your own life. You know extravagance. You know over the top. Be smart, be wise, and be in tune with the Holy Spirit. but enjoy life. You see, you have peace peace of mind um, through Christ and you get to enjoy the little things because he took care of the big things. You get to enjoy um, all of life because he um, conquered all of sin and death and punishment. And the 
bad news is when you look at this hurricane and you look at the brokenness all around this world and you see that this whole world needs redeemed and you feel overwhelmed by it and you're like, oh my, I want to help, but I don't know what to do. The, the bad news is the problem is bigger than you and what you can do today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, or the rest of your life. But the good news is the plan and the solution is bigger than you too. And welcome to the gospel and welcome to the local church. That you've got to make sure you can enjoy the little things in life, recognizing not everyone gets to enjoy those. But you, you, get, to rec- you get to enjoy those things knowing that you have a purpose, you have a lane to stay in, you have a job to do in life that God gives you, but you're not the whole plan, you're part of the plan. And some of us feel guilty because we can't help all the people all the time and we don't know what to do, but God wants you to recognize you can help some of the people some of the time and you need to do whatever I ask you to and trust my sovereignty for everything else and look at your brothers and sisters around you and know they're here not just to fill up seats, but because they're doing everything that God's saying your job, your job, your job. And this is part of being a family. You're part of it. You're not the whole thing. And that should be freeing for us. I had an old professor used to tell me all the time, he'd say, son, some of these things I'd say on a Wednesday night, not necessarily a Sunday morning. Um, this might be one of them. He, he would say, son, you need to work and serve as if it all depends on you, but you need to pray and sleep at night like it all depends on him. And uh, there's a little little bit of truth in that. You serve Jesus well when he asks you to do something. And you go all out. And you let yourself get a broken heart for the hurricane and all the things that are happening. But you sleep at night knowing when he tells you to move, you move. Um, but you can't do it all. As a pastor, I've said no to counseling sessions, hospital visits, discipleship opportunities. I, I've done countless things that I know God's asked me to do. And I've said no to key I've said no to countless things without guilt because I can't do everything. I'm not the Savior. And instead of feeling guilty about that, I find incredible freedom in that. I'll do what I can and I'll sleep at night. Verse 9. Live happily with the woman you love through all the... <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of your life that God has given you under the sun. So it's like, hey, marriage is great, but life is kind of meaningless. All, it's just a, just a roller coaster, it feels like. And the wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. I'm talking about marriage. Number five, enjoy your loved ones. Not like using them, but enjoy them. Enjoy being with them. Now, this is obviously talking about husbands with wives. Most of the biblical writers, they're writing this to elders in a community. And so men are the natural context. But this is for all of people and all of the church. And if you're not married, then this is not saying, hey, go out and find someone and just do whatever you want. No, it's saying you wait until you're married to do some of those things. But all of us can relate. And the fact that this is, this is wives, but this is also husbands. This is, this is kids. This is loved ones. It should be on your biblical bucket list to recognize relationships for what they are, a blessing, a gift, a reward. Some of us have become so enticed by a toxic culture that we are so good at pointing out the flaws in our spouse, the bad days, the rough years, that we don't ever think about the blessing. We don't ever think about the gift. We don't think about the reward. People don't get married because they think marriage is a curse. They get married because they know it's a blessing. There's hard days. Everyone knows that. No one's perfect. Everyone knows that. And yet you get to choose. Are you going to think about the junk all the time? Are you going to think about the fact that two broken people are coming together for the glory of God and this is a gift? This is a gift. Your children, they might be a pain. The biblical definition of children, though, is a gift from God. And if you don't get your head out of the weeds sometimes, the just daily drama, you don't, you don't have that perspective very often because the drama usually pulls you down and makes you think everything's falling apart, everything's horrible, things are getting worse, I'm overwhelmed. Does it not? But this is why we have nights like tonight because we get to pop our heads up for a second and say... I'm going to take a deep breath and get back to what I know is true. And it's good. 
It's good. You see, our culture talks a lot about divorce. I don't know that we would talk as much about divorce, even as an option, if we talked more about verses like this. Instead of a hindrance to my plan and my happiness, you realize you're a gift. You're not a barrier between me and my best life now. No, my life is gone the way it was, and we are two become one. And it's going to be a whole other kind of beautiful. And you get to choose to appreciate that. I remember um, a little over nine years ago when I was going to ask for Tara's hand in marriage, I, I went to what would be my father-in-law's house on a Saturday around 11 in the morning. And I sat down and we talked. And now, to his credit, we didn't know each other like terribly well. I was the new guy into the family. Um, but we talked, and he's a talker, and I'm a talker. And so naturally, with a heavy subject, it's going to go a while. And it went um, to where I, I asked for his daughter's hand in marriage, and it went from around 11 to noon to, um, to 1 o'clock, just me and him, to 2 o'clock, just us in the living room, to 3 o'clock, and it, it, it didn't end, to 4 o'clock, to 5 o'clock, and then at some point, I think he said, you, you want to go get something to eat? And we were like just physically exhausted, I think, emotionally and physically. I was like, yes, we should replenish. And we didn't say much at supper. I don't know if you remember that. There wasn't much that was said because we literally just talked for like four or five, six hours in a row about what it meant for me to have his daughter's hand in marriage. And why, do I, why do I say all that? You see, there's days where it's not perfect. There's days where Tara and I, we're not getting along real well. There's days in any marriage where that's the case, right? For some of us, that's every day. But I've got to go back and remember, there was a day when a father entrusted me with the hand of his daughter. And if you are a man, even if you didn't get to ask the father of your wife for her hand in marriage, there's a heavenly father who has sons and daughters and he's entrusting his daughter. If you married a woman, you were entrusted with the heavenly father's daughter and he's saying this is a big responsibility and this is a gift. This is your reward. And you got to remind yourself of that sometimes. And you got to understand that even in the hard times, it doesn't change the definition the hard circumstances didn't change the definition. It's still a reward. Let me let me share this. We just got a couple minutes left, so we'll we'll make this quick. But um, the other day, I was talking to um, a, a fire inspector in town, and he was telling me a story. We we're talking about buildings. Of course, we're we're looking at eventually moving out of this building to a, a, a bigger facility in town. So I've always got my my eyes open. He said, "Where are you looking at?" And I told him, "Well, there's a few places, but I mean, nothing serious. Just looking." He said, "Oh, I recognize one of those places." And, and he told me, he said, "Yeah, I know this guy. He, he's like 70 years old, and he um he bought that building with his wife. He's going to open this store in this building." And he said, "Man, there is all kinds of issues, and the roof is always flooding." He's like, I've been in there when it was flooding and it's literally pouring onto the floor and you can watch it like little rivers going through this place. And he's like, this guy pumped in tons of money. He said it wore him out, wore him out. And through all of this and pumping all this money in and not fixing it, um, his wife, his wife had an aneurysm and died. And, um, and he sold the property. And this fire inspector said that several months later, like six months later, he went and he saw the guy. He saw him at a restaurant. And he said the guy just looked horrible. He said the guy was still devastated. He lost all his money. He lost those years he pumped into trying to get that thing ready. And he lost his wife. And I think about how he must feel and I'm not saying, I don't know if the guy's a believer. I'm not, this isn't any kind of indictment on him personally. But I put myself in his shoes and I thought, wow, he was working so hard because of what he perceived as the reward. Sometimes men, I think we work so hard because we say in the name of, I'm trying to better my family that we forget our reward is not in front as much as it is standing next to us in the form of our loved ones. Don't sacrifice your current reward for a perceived future reward. What are you going to make some money so you can better 
their life, that's worthless if you're making their life miserable on the journey there. I feel like that can preach. Last but not least, verse 10, we'll wrap up here. Biblical bucket list. Verse 10, he says, whatever you do, do well. You can just picture grandpa just sitting there saying, I've told you a whole bunch of stuff. Last word, whatever you do, do it with excellence. Do it well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. So all this stuff is only good if you make the right decisions in life. The last thing on this biblical bucket list, again, not an exhaustive list, but it's what Solomon is giving us tonight. Number six, be a good and faithful servant. Be a good and faithful servant. Whatever you do, do it with excellence. Do it with excellence. You know, when we show up at Judgment Day, the words that every Christian wants to hear coming out of the mouth of God is, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Here's the bottom line. For the people in this room and listening online, life has thrown us all curveballs. Life has thrown us curveballs, and the goal isn't to answer every why, but it's to respond to everything thrown at us with faithfulness in Jesus. And for some of us, it means that our plans didn't include living where we live, working where we work, feeling like we currently feel, or hurting the way that we have been hurt. But the goal is not trying to to get God to align with your plan. It's to be faithful in his plan as you align with him. There's some things that can't be changed. Things that have happened to you but your response to it, even the way you think about it today and whether you choose to dwell and entertain negative thoughts constantly, you get to choose that today. You get to choose what you're going to do with the broken past and let it be redeemed, healed, and let God get glory as you see and, and share the testimony of what he's brought you through. But that's a choice you've got to make. So it's not about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to it. And Solomon's saying, Whatever you do, through the good times, through the bad times. Just like the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it for Christ Jesus. Ultimately, and I'll close us with this tonight. The reason we even get a talk today about a 3,000-year-old book sharing what a biblical bucket list might look like is because a 1,000 years after this was written, Jesus came down and he fulfilled his God-given bucket list. And he fulfilled the prophecies that God said, here's what the Messiah is going to do. And he lived a perfect life, even though we can't. And he lived and died a sacrificial death, even though we deserved it. And he rose again, even though it seems impossible, but nothing's impossible with God. And he offers eternal life to everyone who believes. Everyone who calls him Lord. It's fun, it's enjoyable, it's good to fulfill bucket lists. A spiritual one, a biblical one is no different than whatever one you might have had in your mind coming in today. It might look different, but in terms of it being good and enjoyable and something to look forward to, oh, it, it, it is but it's all because Jesus fulfilled his. Let's pray.